So we're on the air. Um, okay, so what I want to do tonight is talk about Makas Choshech. Um, and we'll see what sort of uh, right, what sort of ideas we can get about Makas Choshech. And I thought the uh, the right way to begin would be with um, Harry Potter. Um, because there are two important um, scenes in Harry Potter, or two important ideas in Harry Potter, about the purpose of Choshech. So the first thing I gave you on the McCurry sheet is the scene in which Dudley and Harry are attacked by Dementors. Uh, which is in Order of the Phoenix, um, where it says, right, Dudley gave an odd shuddering gasp as though he'd been doused in icy water. Something had happened to the night. The star-strewn indigo sky was suddenly pitch black and lightless. The stars, the moon, the misty street lamps at either end of the valley had vanished. The distant rumbles of cars and the whisper of trees had gone. The balmy evening was suddenly, piercingly, bitingly cold. They were surrounded by total, impenetrable, silent darkness. As though some giant hand had dropped a thick icy mantle over the entire alleyway, blinding them. Okay, right. So this is right. So this is an attempt to depict a personal makas choshech, and what is um, really interesting, first of all, is that um, Rowling gets that darkness by itself is not necessarily is not the same experience as we might call complete sensory deprivation. So, right in order to in order to convey the uh, right, she wants she wants an experience that involves lots of senses. So the first thing is that it's not just dark; it's that all right. It's that there's no light. Uh, right, the stars, the moon, the stars and the moons are turned off. Otherwise, it's not really dark; it's just darker. Second, it's cold. Um, right, so there's right, so the, right there's and third is silent. Okay, she doesn't talk. She doesn't say anything about smell, and there still has to be a capacity, a capacity for touch. But three, three senses simultaneously are involved. It's cold, it's silent, and uh, and it's um, and the darkness is uh, the darkness is total. Now, what is that supposed to be? Right, what what is she trying to convey? So she tells you, in a, a later, Professor Lupin explains. Actually, earlier, Professor Lupin explains, right, this is after the Dementor attack on the train, um, that Dementors are among the foulest creatures that walk this earth. They infest the darkest, filthiest places. They glory in decay and despair. They drain peace, hope, and happiness out of the air around them. Get too near a Dementor, and every good feeling, every happy memory will be sucked out of you. If it can, the Dementor will feed on you long enough to reduce you to something like itself, soulless and evil. You'll be left with nothing but the worst experiences of your life. Okay. So let's assume that Rowling is writing a uh, is writing a medrash on Makas Choshech, and you have a sense, right? What's Mach, what Makas Choshech is supposed to be is this absolute experience of the presence of evil. So the question I want to ask is: Is that really what the Egyptians are supposed to experience? Probably not. Because we don't really, you know, at least I don't, I don't think that's obvious that the Egyptians are supposed to experience evil. Okay, so maybe we'll say that it's not evil. Dementors happen to be evil, but you could create the same thing. And the goal is to create bleakness and massive depression, right? And that's what they, right? So the experience of Makas Khoshev for the Egyptians is supposed to be one of despair, um, so it could be, right? It could be that, that that's a that's a possibility. 
So if we go through the text of Chumash, uh, only three psukim, about Makas Choshech, so that's one thing to have in mind, right? That despair, that the goal is to convey the experience of despair. And the part of the question we have to ask is, is Rowling right that for the, to, to be despair, it's not enough for it just to be night when it's supposed to be day? You need other senses involved. Do they have to be the same senses? Um, does it right? Is it just the sensory experience it does with the dementors, or is it that the dementors cause despair, and despair is what causes these kinds of sensory, these kinds of sensory impacts in ways that wouldn't be the other way around? So, which way is it? Right? Is it really just is makas choshech an effect, or is makas is makas choshech a cause? Um, is it compatible? To have right to say that an experience, right? Do we think that there is some kind of parallel between the experience of dementors and the experience of oncoming divine judgment? Right? Are those the same experience, or is there something right something palpably different about them? Okay, so that's the first question I wanted. Right? Here's a, a depiction of Makas Koshech. You have an instinct when you're writing the Medrash that you want, right? That you want to. You want to turn it from ordinary darkness to above ordinary darkness, and you want to involve senses other than sight in the experience of it. And secondly, what is the emotional impact of it? And is the emotional impact of it separable from the moral impact? Okay, that's Harry Potter. Yep. Chosha, not Bechoros. Yeah. No. I think those are two different. I think those are two very different. That's why I'm suggesting that it might, you know, that's why I'm trying to ask the question, is there a difference between the experience of Dementors and the experience of impending divine judgment? The experience of impending divine judgment could be a very holy experience, terrifying, right? But holy, right? So I yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's correct. What I think is that Rowling connects the experience of despair with the presence of evil. And now there may be a theological context to that because there are versions of or Christian theology in which despair is right, is the deadliest sin, um, which doesn't show have so much uh, so much resonance. There, there is a um, I like talking right. There's a uh, there's a, a chapter in Rav Yosef Albo's uh, Sefer Karim in which he talks about the virtue of hope, um, which is, so far as I know, the only medieval Jewish theological discussion of hope as a virtue, and right, which is connected to this. Um, but generally, um, generally, I don't think there's so much Jewish discussion of hope as a virtue and despair as a despair as a vice. You can you can tie it into concepts of emuna that if you have emuna, you can't really despair. But I don't think that's quite the same thing. So it may be that there are theological resonances, which, uh, right, or cultural resonances, which for Rowling mean the experience of despair has to be associated with evil. But we don't necessarily have to agree with that, right? We can think that there are, 
that there appear that, you know, that there are notions of despair that um, that don't tie into that. Um, part of this is will tie into a question of whether there's ever an experience in which you can't do tshuva. Uh, right, so the um, right Gemara in in um, Brachos right says maybe Sandrin also says right that even a Ganav on the entrance of the Machteret should still right should still have God in mind, and the standard interpretation of that is that you can always do truva even at the last minute, and as long as you have the possibility of truva, so maybe there's um, so maybe there's no um, right there's no legitimacy to despair, but then again you know I think obviously that you, there could be something very much close to despair and. And um, the experience before the Dementor's Kiss is as close to despair as you get in Rowling, but it's, you, right, you still have the possibility of winning. Um, so yeah, I think the question you're asking is exactly right. I think, the, I think that in principle, the experiences of despair and the experience of evil are separable. I think that part of the argument Rowling makes, and I think that's a very conventional argument in our society, is that despair and evil are tightly connected. Um, but I don't know that that has to be. So that's what so I'm asking the theological question. Maybe there are other ways in which you can experience despair that we would not see anywhere near as negative theologically. Okay, thank you. That was a great question. Um, other questions? That's an interesting story. I don't know that story. So that's an interesting story. I want you know, so I can't attribute it to the Gon. Uh, I think that's probably right. I think um, probably of many other people you will know more than me about this. Rav Nachman would talk about this a lot, uh, right? About the right. Rav Nachman talks about the the dangers of depression, right? He's he's the uh, I think he's the modern who talks most extensively about experiences about experiences of depression. So I think that's I think that's right. Um, my, I think in classical Jewish philosophy, it's pretty stark that we don't have anywhere near the same um, the same discussions as you do in um, in Christian theology. But yeah, could be. Um, Interesting, right? Elio and Yona both, right, are the uh, right are the example of suicidal depression, uh, and both of them are out of despair. So that's an interesting connection, right? interesting connection. Um, and Elio, of course, ends up in a cave. Um, interesting. Okay, Okay, I am. Uh, I have to think about it as well. Okay, let's take a look at number two in Harry Potter, and then we'll uh, do other kinds of scripture. <laughs> um, okay, so the second episode is um, second thing is the Hand of Glory. All right, Hand of Glory. I gave you the uh, 
the Wikipedia page, right, that that uh, Rowling didn't make this up, right? The hand of glory is the dried and pickled hand of the hangman. Wikipedia happily gives you a picture, so you know exactly what a hand of glory looks like. Um, and it has lots, it has lots of powers. But in Harry Potter, the hand of glory is a dark artifact, a shriveled hand which gives candlelight only to the holder. It can even shine through the veil created by Peruvian instant darkness powder, which is, I think, the most common explanation of what happened in Mitzrayim. Uh, it was a massive sprinkling of uh, Peruvian instant darkness powder. So one way of understanding what happened in Shemot is that Moshe throws a th- throws a large amount of Peruvian instant darkness powder up, but Bnei Israel have hands of glory. Uh, unfortunately, you know, which are dark, which dark artifacts. So the thing about the hand of glory is that it um, it sheds light, but it's not. It's light that only you can see, all right? And therefore, it is, as uh, Morgan explains, the best friend of thieves and plunderers. So now, in the Psukim, it tells us very explicitly that this is a, right, that what happens in Makas Choshech is that there is darkness, but the Jews have light in their Moshevot. So there's a huge Machlokit raising whether that means that there's a geographical distinction, and there is Choshech in the rest of Mitzrayim, but not choshech for, but not choshech for bnei, uh, where Bnei Israel are, uh, but that really doesn't satisfy people emotionally, um, and it's much harder, as well, it's much harder to talk about absolute zones of light and dark in that way, and then you would figure that the Egyptians would just move. It wouldn't have the, it's not quite right. So it's much more, um, it's much more attractive to read it as that the Jews have light, even where the even where the Egyptians don't. Um, right, that they're they're standing side by side. So I want to right. So the the most famous um, reading of the story, which reads uh, which reads the the contrast in Choshech and Or that way, is the one where in which the Jews spend all this time seeking out the the hidden treasures of the Egyptians, so that either and either taking them or so that later after Makas Bechoros, when they come back to borrow things, they know exactly what it is. And nobody can hold it, can hold out on them, and that is very much the hand of glory notion, right? That the Egyptians are sitting in pitch darkness, and the Jews are going around uh, right, preparing themselves to be plunderers. Um, and I always was a little bit uncomfortable with that, and so the Rowling idea captures uh, captures that. Uh, there are two other explanations of it. Um, one, which is probably you probably also um, are familiar with is that um, a significant percentage of the Jewish population dies during the um, dies during Makas Choshech. Um, the way that the Michilta frames this is, right, when did these, this percentage of the Jews, right, it's, it's built off V'chamushim uh, Alu Bnei Yisrael in Parsha B'Shalach, and there's a debate whether that means that one-fifth of the Jews or one-fiftieth or one-five-hundredth of the Jewish population is all that survives uh, Makas Choshech. It's an enormously bleak, um, bleak uh, medrash that this idea that the um, that the vast majority of the Jewish population, uh, right, less than one, right, it's less than one, less than one percent survives, according to Rabbi Nehorai. Um We could we could all play. My friend uh, Nachman Levine would probably point out to me we're talking about Makas Choshech, and the bleakest vision is offered by Rabbi Nehorai, who's the right, whose whose name means light. Uh, but it's a bleak vision, right? It's a lightless vision. And it says, right, what when do they when do they do, do, do the Jews die during the three days of darkness? because it says that they didn't see each other. What does it mean during the darkness? that the Jews would be burying their 
uh, would be burying their um, their dead. The hodu v'shipchu but they're praising God because God is allowing them to bury their dead without the Egyptians seeing and celebrating. Okay, it's still, you know, you have to figure, you know, that's, a, that's an enormously impressive public sanitation job if you can bury, um, this version, like 24 million people uh, in three days. And you would think that afterwards that the Egyptians would notice that there are a lot fewer Jews than there were, than, than there were before. Um, so this is this is a matter which always um, always struck me as something that you know that's very very dark and powerful. What's the point of trying to claim that even then only um, right, only a small percentage of the Jews um, survive? And you can play this out, right? There are points in Yeshaya where the ultimate redemption also seems to be uh, just uh, you know a small a small remnant. Uh, I think the mainstream of Jewish tradition has very much tended to de-emphasize such notions and assume that the gula will be a will be a very broad gula and we tend to associate this notion of a saving remnant with apocalyptic uh, apocalyptic sects um, but I think we just have to recognize that there is this measure that Yitzhak Mitzrayim is this uh, very bitter bittersweet overall experience even though the ones who leave are very happy um, so that's another right, another purpose of darkness. Here is that darkness enables what really what the purpose of the darkness in here is that it enables the Jews to cover up their sins. Right? It's not right. It's that the it's not that they can see and the Egyptians can't. It's that they can the Egyptians can't see what they are doing. Right? Which is a which is a very different experience. Pirkei Rebbe Yezer, I believe, although I haven't yet seen it inside. Uh, right, tries to create a um, a midah connected midah for all the makot. Right, the, the Egyptians did this, therefore that happened to them. And the way it sets it up is, but there's no midah connected midah. What did the Egyptians do that earned them choshech? And the answer is, choshech isn't a punishment for the Egyptians. Choshech is a present to the Jews because it enables them to bury their dead without the Egyptians seeing. So that's a, that's also I think that's a stunningly dark explanation. To counterbalance that, here's an etziv that I, I saw for the first time today, and I, I am very fond of it. Uh, the etziv says the following: In Makas Choshech, when people when Egyptians didn't get up for three days, so the etziv says, shouldn't they all have died of thirst? All the Egyptians should have died of thirst. Right, the Jews who right, the Jews who had light gave the Egyptians gave the Egyptians uh, food and water of the and everything they needed, um, which might even mean that they took them to the bathroom. I don't know, right? If you treat them as absolute uh, as absolute nursemaids and the Egyptians can't move anywhere on their own, for those some and the Jews did not celebrate. Right, this is the inverse of the Medrash. The Medrash, right, the Medrash said that darkness was there so that the Egyptians wouldn't celebrate in the Jewish downfall. And Siv says that darkness gave the Jews an opportunity to celebrate the Egyptians' downfall. But the reaction, but the reaction, was not to celebrate. Right, that Bnei Israel did not celebrate the um, the day of destruction of Mitzrayim. And did not take this as an occasion for revenge. And it says, if you want to know why it is that 
after Makat Bechorot, all of a sudden, the, right, the Jews find Chain in the eyes of Israel. So you can claim that it's causeless and it's irrational and it's the product of direct divine intervention. But the Nitziv wants to give a more naturalistic explanation. He says that what caused the um, he says that what caused the Chayna Am B'nei Mitzrayim is that when the Jews had the opportunity to, in essence, they could have killed every Egyptian either directly or indirectly, right? By um, by right through through um, through uh, dehydration. Instead, they turned themselves into um, into health aids. And that right, and that and that that generated gratitude. So that to me is it a is um, an amazing um, an amazing inversion of the usual um, of the usual understanding of the story. Uh, and very powerful. Uh, it's entirely possible that Nitziv um, had some sort of contemporary images uh, things in mind. That the Nitziv's commentary on on Chumash I think acquires more polemical errors over time. I think it's Shmoti still writing much more. A straight shot commentary, as I understand it, um, but it's a powerful, it's a powerful moral reading, and it is it picks up on something in the text, because you can argue the simple reading of the text is that the Egyptians are helpless, and at the hands of B'nai Israel, and so why don't they attack? Right, you have this sort of uh, dissatisfying notion in the Medrash that they use the occasion to be sneaky. That's morally dissatisfying on many levels. You have this right, this really bleak vision that uh, they have no time to do anything, but right, but try desperately to cover up the reality that many of them actually deserved everything the Egyptians did to them in a deep moral sense. Uh, right, they don't deserve redemption. And then you have um, this much light, yeah, more light-filled reading of let's um, see if you really wanted to pull it off, you could say that this is. The moment in which the, the Jews demonstrate that they deserve redemption, and that all the right, and the way in which we know that the whole experience of the Makot is not one of vengeance, is because given the opportunity to take revenge and thereby effect, effect, right, effectuate their own um, their their own exodus, but at the cost of turning themselves into murderers, they instead they stay a nurse. Um, any case, I th- I I am. Uh, I think this incentive is becoming is um, rapidly making it into one of my favorite level of favorite forts. Although I've only noted for twelve hours yet, so perhaps I'll find a darker uh, a darker measure. Okay, let's turn to page three now, and then we'll start looking at uh, literary um, effects. So let's guess. First of all, do people have comments about that incentive? That do you all like it as much as I do, or do you uh, have you found a darker side to it? Very nice. Very nice. Uh, thank you. Okay. Anyone else? Okay. So we'll go on then. So I want to put, what I wanted to do was put together um, a couple of other biblical texts that deal with uh, with darkness. First of all, I just wanted to put in as an intertext that uh, we have another version of Makat Choshech in Telem Kufhei. 
how exactly you're supposed to read this in light of Chumash is a little bit um, challenging because it doesn't. It's, it appears to be retelling the Makot, but as you can see, it skips Makot 5 and 6, and Choshech comes first. Um, right, um, which is a, a little bit odd in the retelling. And the truth is, if you looked at the narrative of Chumash, Choshech is not located in any kind of chronological order in the text. There's no Hasra. There's no dialogue with Paro at all, right? Choshech just appears in the middle, uh, in the middle of the story, and so it was tempting to try and see if one could construct a reading uh, in which Choshech actually is the first Maka, and the story is told achronologically. Um, I did not succeed in doing in constructing such a reading today, uh, but I put it out there, and if someone comes up with one, and I'm you know, and I may try as a way of reconciling Tilim and Chumash, I think that would be really interesting. If Choshech turns out to be the first Maka, I think that would fit. Uh, it would fit well with a whole bunch of, of, of other midrashim, but so we just be aware. There's this this pasuk that says shalach choshech vayach sheikh. So this is an interesting notion because here choshech is something sendable, um, and then it has this interesting line afterwards below moru et devaro, and it's not clear at all what the word moru or moru um, means there. Does it mean they didn't transgress it? They didn't see it as authoritative. We'll have to take a look at that as well. So that's one. Right, one intertext that says, um, right, shalach, um, right, shalach choshech. The version we have in Shemot um, says the following, right? So, let's just, it's not, it, it, I assume this is not a punishment of Shemayim. Um, it's tempting to read this as an eclipse, right? But I, I don't, I'm not into naturalistic readings per se. Um, and then right, Moshe does something with his hand um, towards heaven, and Moshe is on Eretz right, on Eretz Mitzrayim. But then we have this interesting line via Mesh Moshe. So what does via Mesh mean? So the um, the the Mem Shin and Shorashim is um, one of the things that. Um, if you are somebody who's really into diktuk, you can spend your life just dealing with mems- with verbs that I've meant, that mentioned. Does it mean that uh, to move, to stand still, or is it in some way related to mamash? Uh, the reading that is closest to the dement- to the dementor reading is that v'yamesh choshech means that the choshech becomes tangible. Uh, right, that it's right, that it's a choshech that is that is oppressive to the sense of to the sense of touch and not just to the not just to the sense of uh, to the sense of light. Okay, then Moshe is is Noteya Dolashimaim. And then there's Choshech, which is Choshech Afela. So that's right here. Is there a difference between Choshech and Choshech Afela? And some commentators will pick up right that the Afela is Moshe's is Moshe's contribution. Right? Really all Hashem said was Choshech, but it turns out to be Choshech Afela. And then we have a description, right? Other people would argue that via Mesh Choshech, turns into Choshech Afela. Um, and then we have descriptions of what happens, right? right? People can't see each other. Um, but the question there is, right, does that mean Jews can't see each other, Egyptians can't see each other, or Egyptians can't see Jews, um, or Jews can't see Egyptians, but that, that we'll see, is a very rare thing. So hard to know what mitachtav means, but it seems to mean that people were uh, right, and this connects to the tangibility notion that people just can't get up, 
um, whether it's because it actually is tangible or because it's, uh, you know, which again, I think is part of the, the Dementor reading that it's, there's a, a single, there's a single event physically, but that physical event has psychological ramifications that, 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 that governs your whole experience. So people can't even get up. Uh, um, so the simplest reading is that refers to Fine, okay, and then then Paro uh, Paro is willing to send them uh, right. He calls Moshe. He calls Moshe now. How he calls Moshe if he can't get anybody to get up? Separate issue, uh, right? It says nice if the Nitziv says there are all these Jews around taking care of them. And Paro tells one of the Jews, "Go call, right? Go call Moshe. Go right. Worship Hashem. You just have to leave your animals, uh, your animals behind." And Moshe says, nope, you're going to actually give us animals as well to sacrifice. Uh, nothing will be left behind, right? This is the point where it becomes obvious that they're not just going for three days, uh, you would think. Uh, but Moshe says something interesting. We don't know what God will ask of us on our three-day journey um, until we go there. So we can't leave anything behind. Because the implication is that God might ask us to sacrifice everything, which is an interesting, uh, an interesting thing to say at this point. Uh, but interesting to me, though, is if we want to take the, we want to take the, um, the met, take darkness as a metaphor. So what Moshe is describing is that B'nai Israel, in a sense, are going off into darkness. Right. The Exodus, uh, the Exodus is not a. Um, is not moving into a situation of guarantees where you know what's going to happen. The Exodus is the Jews walking into something they don't know. Uh, there's the Yossi Rosenstein painting that I have on, in our room downstairs, uh, which depicts the um, Kriyas Yamsuf and the the beauty of the painting is that there are many paintings where you see, right, where you, and you expect to see paintings where you see people walking through the desert and at the end, their focal point is you can see they're going to get through the desert and they're going to get to the water. Right, that's a very common image, and the way Yossi Rosenstein, pa- uh, right, uh, paints um, Kriyas Yamsuf is the Jews, right? The the Jews are are looking past the water into the desert, um, right? And they're walking, right? So they're walking, right? And that's a part of the whole the whole meaning of Shemot is that the Jews are walking into the desert, lechtecha midbar. So that maybe there's a contrast to darkness there, and then we pick it up and say this scene ends with. Uh, right with sight again, and Paro says to Moshe, "You won't see me anymore. Right, we won't see each other anymore. Right, you will no longer see my face. On the day you see my face, you will die." And Moshe says, "You're right. I won't see you anymore." So it's right. So there's a movement from the Egyptians can't see each other to Paro trying to ban Moshe from right from seeing him. Um, although eventually, right, eventually fails in that. So I wanted to just raise the possibility that all those, uh, that the seeings are connected and possibly the Jews walking into something unknown is connected. And that's part of the meaning of Makar Choshech. Okay, next text. Uh, so we have to go back to Horatius. Right? He says, what is Choshech? Particularly, what is the kind, what does it mean that there's a Choshech, which as we saw in Dilem, can be sent? So in the very beginning, right, we have this mysterious Pasuk, the Aretzaita Tovavo, the Choshech al Tehom. So right, so the very beginning, the land is Tovavo, and there's Choshech al Tehom. Now, what kind of Choshech is this? 
right? Because so you have a it, you have a question in terms of the interpretation of Chumash. Uh, right? At what point in time, if it is at a point in time, can we say Because the problem obviously is that the next pasuk says he or. So what would it mean for there to be choshech al to home and not elsewhere? Um, can you have choshech, right? Is choshech more than an absence? Right? If, you, if you had choshech before there was light, it suggests that perhaps choshech is more than an absence. And through the rest of, of Parsha Parishad, it seems that choshech is something uh, more than the absence of light because right, God separates between the or and the choshech as all the, um, all the commentaries point out you can't do that really, right? Light, there's always going to be a space between light and darkness. That's uh, very, it's a, we, we call Ben Hashemashot, challenging. Choshech even gets a name. Choshech is called Laila. Um, and then, right, then we have the, the fundamental problem that God separates between or and, between or and a Choshech here on day one, but then on day four, he sets the Merot Lavdil Ben Or Ben Um that the whole notion of how a Merot separates an Or and a Choshech it's problematic because Merot, what Merot do is they create or they don't separate between or and choshech. So you could, but if you're reading it naturalistically, you can say that Fayabdel is a foreshadowing of what's going to happen on day four. That what happens on on day four is that there are two separate lights, and the light of the moon is and what separates Yom, which is Yom and Lila, is that Yom is one more, and and Lila is the other more, and so what we call choshech here. Is not real darkness, but moonlight. Uh, but you understand that um, if many people look at this and assume that this uh, right, that this must be referring to some other kind of light and darkness, and not to what we call physical light and darkness. Um, but I think that lots of us are aware, from Rashi, if nothing else, that there's what we call an orhaganuz, right? That there's a hidden light that occurs on day one, um, and then right, and that that light Rashi says is hidden for for tzaddikim. To occur, uh, right? To 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 occur in Moshe Mashiach, uh, and that day four is talking about what we call physical light. So the interesting question that I have to raise then is, um, so obviously it's very tempting if you're in this framework to say, "Aha, Orbim in the midst of darkness." So it must be if they can, if the Jews can have light in the midst of darkness. So as opposed to this very very dark thing called the hand of glory, uh, what you can say is that there is a kind of light. Which is only visible to the worthy, and so what happens is is that the the or haganuz right the light that God hides on the first day, is brought out for the Jews during makat choshech. Right? So that's one way of reading the story. Um, another way of reading the story is to try and figure it out, and this will get us back to the Dementor reading, is that maybe if there's a light on the first on the if there's a light on the first day, and that light right which is hidden. And before there was light on the first day, there was darkness. So maybe this darkness is not the same darkness as the fourth day either. Maybe this darkness is related to the light of the first day. And maybe, maybe even though the light and dark of the fourth day, really the dark is just the absence of the light, or even just a relative term, the dark is just a period in which there is less light, or there's only reflected light, there's no, autonom there's no autonomously generated light, Maybe the choshech of the uh, right of the first day is a different kind of choshech, and maybe makat choshech, when it says right, that God sent choshech in Tilim, what it's telling you is that the, the choshech he's sending is not what we call darkness, 
but is the is the antithesis of the light that is saved for tzaddikim, uh, right? So this is the right, and so then we have uh, that's that's what I would say would lead to a very much a dementor reading, that explains what goes on in the what goes on in Choshech as a um, as a recreation of the uh, so, so recreation of uh, recreation is not the right term, it's a redecreation. It's the experience of the world which is still completely chaos, where God hasn't even yet said, let there be light. And right, that one can see would be you know, an enormously uh, terrifying experience, uh, whether it's connected to an experience of evil. Um, right, So that's part of the whole notion about how you experience the nature of, the nature of creation. You could claim that the, um, if you take the, the, the approach, which I like, that the that creation happens because God wants to express chesed. So then a world in which there is no creation is a world in which there is no chesed. If you pull, play that out and you say that a world in which there's no chesed is a world in which there's pure din, so now we're in the experience. That it's the experience, it's the experience of divine judgment, but it's the experience of divine judgment that's not the experience we have of divine judgment. It's right, just an experience in a world in which there is nothing else. Uh, so it might, I think that's a... A very strong way of getting to the um, getting to what I call the dementor reading, um, um, right? So if you focus on the light, the oraganus, so that can get you to the hand of glory reading, but in a positive way. If you focus on the choshech, and you think the choshech is the choshech is the choshech aganus, then you get very much to the dementor reading. Okay, uh, one other inter intertext um, is that in uh, Shemot Perak you have a description of what happens when the Jews uh, are already on their way out, right? And Pharaoh and the Mitzri army is pursuing them. So the story says, So the angel who is traveling in front of the uh, B'nai Israel camp moves behind them. The Amud Anan that, that is traveling before them in daytime moves behind, uh, right, moves behind them. It serves Israel. Okay, so right, so the Mitzri army is pursuing Bnei Israel. The there there is a Malach and a Mudhanan in front of Bnei Israel, and it moves behind them. Uh, and then we have this interesting phrase: Vahi heanan vehachoshech vayoyer es halayla. So there is the cloud and the choshech. Vayoyer et halayla and. Tayyaratalayla seems to think that there is light in the night. So here we have once again an interweaving of Choshech and Or. We don't know where the Or is coming from. We don't, for that matter, know where the Choshech is coming from. If we were you know, engaged in you know, literary parallelism, we would have to think that the Choshech is the Malach. Because it was right, because the two things that went behind them are the Anan and the Choshech. And the question is, what's what's Vayayer? Right, so that's the whole question of, first of all, well, the Nays are all running away. So why would they be tempted to, right? Why, how can you have an inter, uh, why, would, why do you need to prevent the movement towards each other? Uh, so you can try and read it and say that it doesn't mean move, movement towards each other. It just means that A didn't draw close to B. And so means as a result of this, the uh, as a result of this, the Mitzri army did not approach the Jews, but that's a little bit of weak reading of Zelze, I think. Um, you have the other reading that um, which is built on the intertext of uh, right in um, Yeshaya, 
which says it's the Malachim. Don't draw near to each other, and that's where you get the Midrashim about the Malachim not saying Shira on the night of uh, on the night of Kriyat Yamsuf. But our focus is just what is what is this Choshech doing here? Okay, so here is um, the Mechilta. Uh, the Mechilta, Mechilta says the following. So there's an Anan and the Choshech. The Anan is faith, right, is towards the Jews, but the Choshech is towards Mitzrayim. So this this scene is a recreation of Makar Choshech. Right, so just like in Makas Choshech, here again, Bnei Yisrael are in light, and Yisrael is in Afila. And he quotes, right, and he, right, he quotes the Look, and here, so the Mitzrayim can't move, so here, here we have a full recreation of, uh, a full recreation of Makas Choshech, um, leading perhaps to a recreation of Makat Bechorot at the end of uh, Kriyat Yamsuf. And then, then the, the Mechilta goes further. He says, Makas Choshech will be recreated again in the ultimate redemption. So you're killing reading Yeshaya. Right, so, right, so B'nai Israel have to go forth because their light has come, even though darkness has covered the land. Um, right, so this Right, so the impression you get in Yeshaya, right, is you, you know, you, you're you're painting it. There's darkness all around, and there's a beam of light coming down on uh, on on Bnei Israel. And then we go and we pull, and we and we pull out the full the full parallel. The Lord Ella Kol Mishunotun Ba'afila. But here we have a very interesting claim, right? So, what we call the hand of glory reading was that there's light, and in by that light, Bnei Israel can see, and the Egyptians cannot. But here we have a different reading. Everybody who was who was locked in who who will be locked in this darkness or possibly the Mitzri army uh, over here. Israel um, So the Mitzri army is in darkness, and they see the Bnei Israel uh, in light and celebrating. And but they're not frozen in this case, right? Which is really interesting. And so they're so maddened by the sight of Bnei Israel celebrating that they start shooting arrows at them and and catapults. And the uh, right, but the Anan blocks everything, right? They right blocks everything, so they can stand in place and shoot, but the Anan blocks everything. So that is, for one part, that's the Nitziv is is in a sense inverting that. Because the vision we have here is that the Mitzrim, Mitzrim are seeing the Jews in light, and they react with anger, violent jealousy, and uh, the says that, on the other hand, Bnei Israel are in light, seeing the Egyptians in suffering, and their reaction is charity. Uh, I should say I much prefer. I'm going to try to be consistent and say Mitzrim. I don't like using modern terms, um, and I think it has unfortunate implications. Um, okay, so the um, but. <laughs> Here we have the image, right? That the light enables the light enables you to be seen. Although, and the only use that you can have, right? That the people in darkness have of the light is that they can see the people in the light. 
Now that's the exact opposite of the hand of glory. Right? The point of the hand of glory is that you can is you can do everything you write, or the, what we, the burial reading is that you can do everything unseen. And here the point is that uh, it's much more. If you think of Plato's image of the cave, what it, what it does is it turns the people in darkness into the theater audience. And the people in light are the actors on stage, and it makes clear who the focus is on. So that's a completely different reading of not right. So if you read this, so this is formally a reading of the scene, um, the scene by the sea, and which is right, it's 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 a vision of the world to come, right? It's built off the vision Yeshaya, right? Uh, right, but God, God's glory is shining down on you. Uh, if you take that and you read it back into the story of right the story the story before Kriyat Yamsuf, and then I'm saying and that 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 has to be read back into Makas Choshech. So the point of the point of Makas Choshech then is it creates a sense it creates a situation where it's clear that you're helpless and that you have no role except as a witness. Um, and you could try and tie that back into the constant refrain throughout the story, that in fact, the whole purpose of Makat Choshech is to turn the Mitzrayim into witnesses of God's power. And so Makat Choshech is the right is the fulfillment of that right that they have nothing to do but to stay in place and watch right and and watch God's glory play out. I'm happiest if the way they watch it play out is the way the Nitziv, um, Nitziv said it. Okay, but we should be aware that there are lots of other ways of um, reading this. I gave you the Medr Seichel Tov, which is not um, not Chazal, uh, but later it says the following. Uh, so he starts off with the reading that we saw above. So the cloud turns in right. The cloud turns into a, a, a radiant, a radiant light. So he says the darkness is a metaphor, and it's a metaphor for the um, the bima of judgment. Right, the bima is what where you get whipped. Right, the dot. Right, I guess the equivalent would now be the. Uh, the defendant's dock, um, right? So, so, right? So, the Seichel Tov really reads this, I think, very much as the right, the Dementor reading. It's it's not it's not darkness. It's the experience of the imminence, uh, the imminence of judgment, and ju- and their judge their judgment is dark. Okay, Vayoyer So here we, it turns out to be a, a fascinating dispute about Vayoyer Etalayla. Um, which will play out some of the positions here, right? Yesh Lomar Vayoyer equals Siluk Ha'or Min Halayla. Vayoyer Talayla means that it sucked the light out of the darkness, not that it put light into the darkness, right? This is, I could have given you a uh, another Harry Potter scene, right? The, the very first scene with Dumbledore and the Putter Outer, where you suck all the light out of the, right, out of, out of the lights, right? So that's what, that's what happens here, is that all the light is sucked out of the of of Israel, right? Silak or Silak or Minhalayla. Vahimina Milin Habunin Vahasotrin, right? This is one of these words, I forget what the English term for it is, a word that means itself and its opposite. And he gives other examples, right? So Vayoyer etalayla doesn't mean that he that they put light into the dark into the darkness, rather that light was removed from the darkness. Um okay, there's an Amuda H that's before Machana Israel. Right? So they say that 
that um, so on the Bnei Yisrael side, there's an Amuda H which is giving light, and on the Mitzri side, there is something maybe the Amuda Hanan that is removing all the light from the place. Okay, so now we're back in the scene where Bnei Yisrael are on stage in the light. And we try in Bechashecha. So you remember that, right, we just saw uh, up here that the result of that, right, we just saw the Mechilta, the result of that was that the Jews are on stage and the Mitzrayim can see them. Well, what about the reverse, right? Um, can you see the Can you see the audience? So he says, Yisrael, Ochlin, Ochlin, Shosin, Usmechim, Ve'enan Roim, Esa Mitzrayim, Bechashecha. So that what it works is, right, so the Bnei Yisrael, are on stage and there are spotlights on them. And the actors can't see past the spotlights. So the Mitzrayim are firing at them and the Malach is protecting them, but the key psychological element here is that B'nai Yisrael are completely unaware of this. Right, that's the addition, that's the that's the addition the Seichel Tov puts in, that the, right, that what the what the Anan does is it imposes an experience on the Mitzrayim which leads to, right, now, Bnei Yisrael have no idea what is going on on the Mitzri side. All they know is that it's light where they are and that there's this absolute shield between them and they celebrate and they have no idea what this is doing to the Egyptians psychologically. So that's also, I think, a very interesting aspect of it. So you have a version in the Siv where Bnei Yisrael are taking care of Mitzrayim, a version of the Mechilta in which Bnei Yisrael is celebrating and the uh, Mitzrayim are, are impotently firing things at them, and perhaps they're aware, and that increases their celebration. And the Seichel tells reading where they just end up living in completely separate universes that have an impact in the sense that B the Mitzrayim can see Bnei Israel, but Bnei Yisrael, but that has no impact on Bnei Israel at all. They don't have any idea that the Mitzrayim are seeing them. Um... Yeah, I think that's. Yeah, right. I think it's a very, very interesting reading. Right? What would have, what would they have done if they had seen this? Right? Would they have stopped celebrating? If they had known, right? If they had known the result of it was that the Mitzrayim were firing catapults at them, right? I think that the, I think that perhaps what the Seichel Tov is saying is. It would be immoral to be celebrating if you could see what was happening to the Mitzrayim, but they don't know. All they know is that there's a wall, and that therefore that justifies them in celebrating. But you know, but it doesn't change the fact that Mitzrayim that, that it has this effect on the Mitzrayim. And I guess you could say that in the same way that the um, that in the Sims reading, it's the generosity they show during Choshech that leads to the Chain. Perhaps part of what the Seichel Dov is trying to do is explain why the Mitzrayim charge when the when the veil is removed, because this entire time, right, as opposed to being awed, they're just furious, uh, right? But Bnei Israel are not responsible for that because they weren't teasing them, right? It wasn't taunting; it just happened that way.
that'd be very nice. I would, uh, I would, I, um, I, I don't know if the Ditsiv says that, but that would be very nice. I like it very much. Okay, I see that we're, um, that we're, that, um, this is cool. Thank you. I want to just get a couple of things before we, uh, before we're done. Um, happily, I won't get to everything that was on the McCurry which is the first time in a while. Uh, it's, it's good to have that again. People are participating. Uh, so I just wanted to point out um, another interesting reading. So you have this dispute. Ibn Ezra, Ibn Ezra hates the reading that says that uh, Vayara means, Vayara means um, darkness. He thinks there has to have been light. Most other people assume that there's light and darkness. The, uh, playing out what we just said, let's let's take a look at uh, what Yosef Ibn Kaspi does with light and dark. So he says, So see how mistaken or how or how astray the right the people who preceded me, the comedy that preceded me, are from the truth. Because they don't know logic. Right? Professor Ben Kaspi is an unabashed philosophic elitist, and he thinks that the only way you can possibly understand Khumash is if you understand philosophic logic. Thought that you could um, right that the shot of the work is and that's all talking about the Mitzrayim. So how can that be? That would create choshech and or um, relating to the same subject, and that can't be. was forced you know engaged in forced readings ad so he, right, so what he's compelled to do, as we saw, is you have to reverse the reading and say means that he actually he took the light away. Ibn Ezra barach but Ibn Ezra rejected Ibn Janach's reading. He, he fled from it. But he could not find a safe a safe place to flee to. Therefore, right, he had to say that the, there are two there are. Uh, opposite subjects to Hanan Vachoshek on the one and the other, the Avayor on the other. Rosuni, Haor Vachoshek Nims Ulishne Nos Imit Chalfim. So Ezra has to say that Hanan Vachoshek relates to one subject, namely the Mitzrayim, right? And Vayoyer Talayla, right, refers to the other subject, the Jews. Vahema Mitzrayim Vishraelim, Kimoshe Vin Unklus, which is also what Unklus says. But on this Ibn Kaspi says, And if the Torah had said this, right, the Torah had said that there was, as it did by Machas Choshech, that there was Choshech for Mitzrayim, but for Bnei Yisrael, that would be, right, that would be correct. But, um, right, but he says that's not true, right? Do we have the right to add and subtract the Chumashas at will? If that's the case, right, then there's no point in having uh, in having in having chumash at all. If we can just change its meaning, so that can't be that either. Aval diber al klal halayla bichlal hamakomahu. So Ibn Kaspi says it has to be that the entire darkness, the entire night, was a combination of choshech and or. Right. So logically. There has to right, there has to have been a mixture of of choshech and or for for both encampments because they are next to each other. So he says in this overarching time, there was both there were both was both choshech and or in this place. 
What he means is that there was strobe lighting. There was there was there was uh, there was night which was constantly lit with very bright flashes of lightning. There was no right. There was no quiet at night. All it was always lightning. Right, so also at Mamar Sinai it describes a um, right a heavy, a heavy a heavy a thunderstorm. Right, because there was a heavy wind blowing the entire time. Uh, right, heavy uh, uh, um, a storm wind blowing the entire time with lightning. Right, so the, what's going on is a classic deep of night lit by lightning flashes. And here's his claim. So Ben Kaspi says that everybody, everybody was blinded by the constant interchange between, right, between darkness, between darkness and light, and therefore the Mitzrayim couldn't move. But it wasn't that Bnei Yisrael, it wasn't that Bnei Yisrael had light and the Mitzrayim did not. It's that everybody was subject to these strobe, right, to these strobe flashes. And because of these strobe flashes, uh, nobody could see. Uh, Stephen Kaspi has this really, this fascinating attempt at explaining the Pasuk. I think it's pretty compelling the Vayoyer, um, that Vayoyer means light and not darkness. Although, as many people point out, right, this is, the, this is the introduction to the first parak, the first sugya of Masech Psachim, which is about whether or the Arba'asar means right means uh, the the night or the day of the uh, of the fourteenth, and that's um, and that and this the first sugya there quotes a whole bunch of cases which might seem to demonstrate that or is one of the words that can mean itself and its opposite, and the Rishonim have their own examples of such things. Uh, what Ibn Kaspi loses is all the intertexts, because if this story is one in which there is or for uh, there's there's or in Choshech for both Mitzrayim and Bnei Yisrael, and they're both equally um, equally incapacitated, so then there's no parallel whatsoever to the um, there's no parallels whatsoever to the right to Makas to Makas Choshech, and nothing really uh, nothing really. Uh, more you can do to um, to bring the, the parallelism to Gula. Um, okay, it's running. Um, should point out the refresh. Um, refresh takes the stage reading that I gave, so you shouldn't think I uh, I made it up. Refresh says that what really happening is that it's, there's pitch darkness everywhere, except um, right uh, right. He's talking he's talking about Mamar Har Sinai, right? Right. Right, so he he thinks that Harsinai was that point where the audience is is in black and the and and the state and the stage is lit, and that seems to me that's a very reasonable reading of our story, um, as well. Uh, okay, so we won't have time to do, but just introduce you. There's a the Malbim here has um, an absolutely uh, an absolutely brilliant reading in which he does in fact connect the um, connect all connect all these. Um, all these, all the intertexts together. Um, so let's just, just to take a look, so you can see how it begins. Um, right. So he says, He takes, right. He takes a uh, the pasuk of the as intertext, and he says, "Midrash Omer, Amar Hakadosh Baruch Hu LeMalachim." Right. The Mitzrayim deserve Choshech. The Mitzrayim, the Malachim, all vote in favor of 
of uh, imposing choshech. That's the Lord's varav. But here's the line I want: Mehechan heviyah kadosh baruch walehem hachoshech. Right. So it says that God sent the darkness to them. Where did the darkness come from? So it turns out that there's a machloket Rabbi Yudah and Rabbi says mechoshech shel mala. It's the darkness that surrounds God in Shemaim. Rabbi Nechemia Omer Mechoshech Shel Gehenim. Rabbi Nechemia says it's the darkness, right? It's the darkness of Gehenim. So we end up is right in the. This is a machlokus within the Dementor reading. Uh, one of them, Rabbi Nechemia says that actually, what they are experiencing is a darkness that has no kedusha in it, um, right? It's not. It's not an. It's not an awesome darkness. It's a terrifying darkness. Maybe there's some religious edification in experiencing it, but there's nothing, there's nothing religious about the experience at all. Rabbi Yudah has this fascinating claim. Right? Rabbi Yudah says that the, the unique choshech is the choshech of Shemayim. It's the choshech that, um, that, that surrounds God in Shemayim. It's the choshech haganuz. And so you have to try and figure out, uh, right, what is it, right, what does it mean that the experience of choshech from Mitzrayim was something that was a rare religious uh, religious experience. What is it that the Jews uh, that the Jews had with them? Uh, right, he says that that the you know, that the since we're dealing with the original separation of light and dark, it meant whenever Bnei Israel wherever Bnei Israel went, the light went with them. Um, and so the it's not so, it's not so right so that every every member of Bnei Israel is on stage individually. Um, right, it's not that they're all sitting. It's not that the Mitzrayim are all sitting in a cave watching the Jews up on stage. It's that all Bnei Israel are on stage because they have the uh, because they have the or um, the or Haganus shine, shining on them. And maybe, right? Not maybe that actually casts light, but it creates a situation where the only light the Mitzrayim have is the light that is cast for them uh, by Bnei Israel. Okay, so you can think about that reading. Uh, okay, that reading as well. We don't have time to do it uh, all the way through, but um, hopefully it gives you a taste. Okay, that is the end of uh, my share. Um, comments are uh, welcome.